0: My name is Allison, and the Old Testament reading is found in Jeremiah 31, verses 2 through 6. The Lord says, The people of Israel who survive death at the hands of the enemy will find favor in the wilderness as they journey to find rest for themselves. In a far-off land, the Lord will manifest himself to them. He will say to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That is why I have continued to be faithful to you. I will rebuild you, my dear children Israel, so that you will once again be built up. Once again, you will take up the tambourine and join in the happy throng of dancers. Once again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. Those who plant them will once again enjoy their fruit. Yes, a time is coming when watchmen will call out on the mountains of Ephraim, Come, let us go to Zion to worship the Lord our God. The word of the Lord.
1: My name is Ben. The New Testament reading is found in 1 John 3, 1 through 8. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The word of the Lord.
0: My name is Carissa. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in John 15, through 5, and 9 through 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The Gospel of the Lord.
2: Praise be to our Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning church. It's good to see all of you again. Yes, yes, yes. We're in a series called Beloved. And it's a series through a little letter uh, toward the end of your Bible called 1 John. It's a letter from John um, by longstanding church tradition. This is the same John that wrote uh, the gospel according to John. And so this is John, the son of thunder, who at one time, you know, his mother wanted him to sit at the right hand of Jesus when he came into the kingdom. And uh, this is the guy who also at one time wanted to call down fire from heaven. But something's happened to this John. He's softened. He's understood the transformed power of the love of Jesus. And so by the time he's writing all of these, um, both his gospel and these letters, he's John the Beloved. John, the one who uh, leaned his head against Jesus and was was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is the Beloved. But he's also uh, the apostle that reminds us that we are the Beloved. And that's kind of the theme that undergirds each uh, week as we look through the different chapters of this letter. When we started this, we said, okay, John's big first message is that God is light. And then we said, "Uh uh-oh, light, that feels like an exposing light, like a search light. And we said, no, 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 it's much more like when you walk into your kid's room and they're having a nightmare and you turn on the light and you say, look, look, hey, 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 it's me, it's dad, you're home, this is your house, the monsters are gone. And how much that we see that play out in that story that John tells in his gospel. When the woman caught in the act of adultery, the, the religious leaders shine the searchlight, the spotlight on her and say, Aha! But Jesus, the light of the world, sees her and says, Woman, where are your accusers? See, as it turns out, The light of God is not a shaming light, but a saving light. And then from there, last week, we went into chapter 2, where we said, okay, but what about sin? What do we do with sin? And we said, well, yeah, John is pretty clear on this, that as we know the Father, it's meant to lead us to obey his commandments. And then we stopped and we said, now listen, we need to reframe how we hear the word commandments. It's not arbitrary rules and laws. The commandments are meant to bring us life. That God's instructions are given to us so that we can enter a truly flourishing life. And then we said, okay, okay, but, but, but what are those commandments? Well, in John's letter, he kind of says it in two ways. He says it in the affirmative, love one another. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. But he also says in chapter 2, do not love the world. And so last week we said, okay, wait a minute, do not, what, what do you mean do not love the world? And we said, no, not the physical stuff, not the cosmos as in the physicality of it, but the kind of way of living that is apart from God and against God. And eventually we worked our way to this point last week where we said, okay, listen, ultimately sin is disordered desires. St. Augustine said, the whole of Christian life is about desiring, holy desire. It's about learning to love properly the right things and in the right ways. And sin takes good things and either loves them too much or loves them in the wrong way. And we talked about what that looks like. And we realized that when John says, do not love the world, he's trying to save us from filling up on a lesser love, on a lesser thing. He's trying to cause us to have a greater appetite. We use that C.S. Lewis quote where he said, God doesn't find our desires too strong. God's not constantly saying, shh, want less, desire less. God's saying, desire more. You're settling for the cheap substitutes, right? Now this week, we're going to keep dealing with this issue of sin because John keeps wrestling with it, but instead of looking out there as in the things that we set our affections on, we're going to look back here at us. And so the title for this week is You Now Now. And not yet. Who you are now, and who you are not yet. See, the trouble with sin is it can produce a bit of an identity issue. It can produce a little bit of an identity crisis because maybe you've you've grown up in a home or an environment or around a, a, a religious way of thinking that every time you sin, you shame yourself, and you start to believe I am this horrible. And so sin can create this identity crisis of, who am I? I thought I was this guy who comes to church and does this. And then Monday morning or Monday evening or whenever it is, all of a sudden you realize, you you, you know, you make a mistake, you've done something, and you're like, ah, I'm not really that person. I'm this person. So which is it? Who are you really? Are you a saint? Or are you a sinner? You're like, well, it depends on the day. (laughs) You know? And some of us, many of us, we come to church based on how good we're feeling about ourselves during the week. If you had a a rough weekend, Friday night, Saturday, things did not go the way you thought, you you might be like, you know what, I'm going to skip church today because I don't want to be reminded about what a sinner I am. (laughs) Or you say, you know what, I've had a pretty good week. I think I will come to church today or it shows up for some of us in the way that we worship or respond to God in worship, right? If we're feeling particularly good, it's like two hands, baby. <laughs> yes, Lord. I'm in, you know. And if you're not feeling particularly good, it's like maybe one hand, the other in the pocket, you know, okay, Lord, you know. Or maybe it's like this, like I'm stuck you know? And our confidence about how we approach God is so often shaped by the way we see ourselves. Our confidence about how we approach God is shaped by how we see ourselves. So we've got to wrestle with this today. Who are we? Are we the person that is defined by the sin, or are we a person that is defined by something else? First John chapter 2, verse 28 is where we're going to start, right at the tail end of chapter 2, because you know this letter, when it was written, didn't have verse markings or chapter markings, so we're free to kind of read it with a flow of thought here, okay? Verse 28, and now little children, I love this, John the elder, elderly apostle, tenderly speaking, and now little children abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I want you to circle or underline a couple words in those verses. Appears. We're going to see that word appears or appeared or appearing. We're going to see that a few times in this chapter. And then the word shame. Not shrink from shame. We may have confidence, he says. And then verse 29, you may be sure. Confidence, sure. The opposite of shame and shrinking, right? Ah, Confidence and sureness versus shame and shrinking back. Yeah, John, I want that. And then he goes, and then he says in verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. Oh, sorry, I skipped verse 1, didn't I? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Hallelujah. There it is. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But We know that when he appears, see all that appeared word and appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone... it will stop there. Because we shall see him as he is. Now stop and take that in for a moment. This is who we are. This is who we are. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. If you look at just kind of the structure of these few verses, what John is doing is he points first to the future. Jesus is coming. I don't want you to, to have shame and shrink back. You need to have confidence and be sure. And then he comes to this present moment. You can be sure that it's, it's, this is us. This is who we are now, children of God. And then he goes back to the future and he says, Now listen, when he appears, we're going to be just like him. Ah, Church, if you're listening to this, you recognize that this is extraordinarily good news. That who you are both now and not yet is really good news. This is one of the few times in the New Testament that the now and not yet idea is set in one verse. There you have it. John says, this is who you are now and who you will be not yet. It's when he appears. You've maybe heard different people reference this, the already and not yet St. Augustine, in his sermons on this very text, says the same thing. He says, look at the already now and the not yet. As Christians, we know we're living between something that has happened and something that has not fully been completed. This now and this not yet. But John says, now we are children of God. What is not yet? We're not yet fully like Jesus. But you already are children of God. But you're not yet fully like the Son of God. Romans, Paul kind of says it this way in verse 15 of Romans 8. He says, but you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There's that fear, shame, shrinking back kind of image again. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, we might add, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Papa, Papa. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's Paul using the same verb tense, right? This is who we are. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And then Paul, skip a few verses down in verse 19, says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing God of the sons of God. Like, wait a minute, I I thought we are, you are, but it hasn't fully been revealed. Now, this is one of those great mysteries about our faith, that you can already be something and yet not have it revealed in its fullness. This is why John says the world doesn't really see what's going on in you. They just think you're a really good person with good parents and a good upbringing and decent moral instruction John says, the world doesn't see that something much more powerful is actually happening in you. You already are children of God. And one day, that's going to be fully revealed. One day when Jesus appears again, you're actually going to be fully like him. You'll see him, and then you'll be like him. How beautiful is that? How should we live in light of this? What does John want to say to us? Having said, this is who you are, and then what's coming is even better. You're going to be fully like Jesus. And so how do we live in this in-between? How do we live in the light of that? Verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. Now, these, the, these two words, sin and lawlessness, they don't, they don't mean much to us, okay? But in John's congregations, there were people who were making a distinction between these two words. They're two different Greek words. And one group of people was saying, oh, sin, that's just like when you mess up. Lawlessness, that's like full-on rebellion against God. And so they said, well, the devil, that's rebellion. But this is just a little itty-bitty mistake. And John says, you should not sugarcoat this. That actually your sin, your ongoing practice of sin, is participating with the devil's rebellion. Now that's strong, isn't it? The ongoing practice of sin, of persisting in sin, is a way of participating in the devil's rebellion. You're like, uh oh. This is how the gospel works. We often find out that the bad news is worse than we thought. And then we find out that the good news is better than we hoped. But you don't get to the good news by watering down the bad. So John says, sin is lawlessness. No getting around this. And John says, if you persist in sin, you're participating in the devil's works. Verse 5, you know that he appeared, Jesus. Now again, if you're underlining that word appeared, you've got a lot of work to do today. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children hear the tenderness in John's voice. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, if you're a literature person, you'd have seen this right away. John has bookended this section with two statements about Jesus' appearing. First he says Jesus appeared to take away the sins, our sins. Then he says Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. What's he saying? Look, you're trying to separate the devil's rebellion and your little sin. John says they both belong together, but I got good news. Jesus appeared to destroy both. Yes, the bad news is worse than you thought, but the good news is better than you hoped. Jesus' appearing is to take away our sins, but it's also to destroy the, the devil's works. You might say this is a way of thinking about sin and evil in a micro sense and in a macro sense. The micro sense is you and me when we participate in this rebellion every time we persist in sin. That's this micro thing. The good news is Jesus appeared to take away that sin. And then you say, but, but listen, my participation in sin is just a small thing. The devil's works are all over the world. There's evil. There's all... Yes, and Jesus appeared to destroy the devil's works. Jesus deals with both the big and the small. Jesus appearing dealt with both. And that's the good news John has. John says, look, you don't need to sugarcoat this or make this sound not as bad as it really is. Because if you make it sound not as bad as it really is, you're going to miss how good Jesus is. Jesus appeared to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. He keeps going here in verse 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. We're going to come back to that image. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident we are children who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother again there's likely a couple groups in John's congregations one was the group of people that said we're already perfect we don't have any sins and that's why in John 1 1 John 1 he says "Uh, if you say that you're lying (laughs) Every one of us sins. And then there was this other group of people that said, well, um, I just don't think it matters what we do. Like, I'm already in God, so it doesn't matter how I behave. And John says, actually, it does. So, he said, by addressing two groups of Christians, he's actually saving us from two pitfalls, right? The one group that says, I'm perfect! And he says, no, you're not! If you say you don't sin, you're a liar! Liar! And then he says... And yet, if you are born of God, you're not going to persist in sin. Wait a minute, I thought you told me that we all sin, and if I say I don't sin, I'm a liar. Yeah, that's for, that's for the people who say, I- I'm, I'm, I'm beyond this, I'm above this. He says, no, 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 you're not. And then over here, you got the people that say, well, then it doesn't really matter how I live. And he says, no, actually it does. Like God actually wants to change the way you live. He's not here to just make you feel better about yourself, right? This is where we confront, again, our notions of love versus God's vision of love. Our notion of love is live and let live. I love you. Just be, right? And God's notion of love is, I love you, so I want you to have true life. Stop practicing and persisting in This This is what John wants to say to us. In between between the now and the not yet of who you are, John says, become who you already are. Become who you already are. The seed of God is in you. Now, become who you already are. And you say, well, um, I'm not sure how we do this and how do we actually stop quote-unquote practicing sin how do we actually stop practicing and persisting in sin one of the things that's worth saying is that there is permission here for the process there is permission here for the process I think part of the freedom in knowing that who we are now is children of God and who we are not yet is fully like Jesus is that both the beginning and the future are secure. And so there's permission for the process. You don't have to hurry up under... Remember the old kind of holiness pressure where it was like, if you're not holy now, you might have just lost your salvation. Like, oh my gosh, maybe I need to go to the altar call again. And one wonders if this was just a technique to keep the altars full. (laughs) John has none of that pressure. He says, actually, the pressure's off. This is who you are. This is who you will be. There's permission for the process now. It's okay. And not only is there permission for the process, but you're not asked to turn in progress reports. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, church is not like weekly progress reports. It's not God with the clipboard saying, how'd you do? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, not so good. What? No. One of the things we learn from neuroscience is that deeply ingrained patterns of behavior take a long time to undo. It forms pathways in your brain. You keep going. Why, you, you ask, Why do I keep going there in my mind? Because that's like a well-worn path, man. That's like a highway. You've been going there for so long that it's a highway. And one of the myths about this is that we say, well, well the answer is just to not go there. No, 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 no. Actually, one of, the, one of the things we learn through neuroscience that actually works along with what the scriptures teach is that, the answer is actually not to just say, stop going down that highway, but it's kind of like water where there's already a riverbed. The water's going to flow where there's already a, a well, you know, carved out riverbed. What's the answer? Carve out a new one. You carve out a new one. And this is what Paul says. He says, renew your mind, be transformed. Start a new practice, something that... So at the moment you start to feel fear, instead of going there, let's carve out a new practice that takes you here. As soon as you feel tempted in here, instead of the, the old practice of saying, well, I'll just channel surf, go here instead. These are practices that we do to help carve new paths. So there's permission for this process to be longer than we might think. But you undo the practice of sin by practicing righteousness. I love how the ESV says it. Practice righteousness. Practice it. Right? I mean, we all know the analogies from sports. It's like, you can tell when Peyton Manning's in sync with the wide receiver because they've had hours and hours and hours of running around. That's why he can let the ball fly before they're even looking. And they turn around and it's like, oh, there it is. How did that happen? They kept practicing it over and over and over again. But see, you're not practicing righteousness from a place of fear. You're not practicing righteousness from a place of panic and shame and saying, I am a filthy sinner. No, you're saying, I am a dearly loved child of God and I will be fully like Jesus. So I'm just going to practice this. The pressure's off. It's a preseason game. (laughs) one of the things we practice is we practice by remembering who we are we practice by remembering who we are we say you have been born of God you are children of God you know what's amazing is all the metaphors in the world cannot really make this picture full so the New Testament tries several metaphors you're children of God. you like, okay, that's, I kind of get that. But children, there's something in that that's true, but yet we also know we're adopted, and so we think, oh, great, I, I didn't belong, but now I've been brought in. But then in the back of your mind, you're saying, adoption's great, but do I really have the DNA of God? And well, Paul says, yeah, the seed is in you. So, and then we have this courtroom language that we use all the time, right? Justified, I've been declared righteous. And you're like, cool, God says I'm righteous, but am I actually, right? Here, John's saying something quite radical, right? He's saying, if God's seed is actually in you, something about you has actually changed. Something about you is actually different. You have this in you. Not because of who you are. This is not the New Age version of it, you know? Believe in yourself, it is within you. No, 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 no. This is true because God has put it in you. An infusion of grace has rushed into your life, and the life of God is now in you. And guess what it will do? It will produce fruit. It's going to. John says, purify yourself. St. Augustine makes this remark. He says, purify yourself. There is a way that we join our will to God. In other words, God's saying, I've done the miraculous, the supernatural by putting my life in you. Now you join your will to God's work and begin to let this grow. Remember who you are. Remember that that's there. There is not just a new start. There is a new nature in you. The gospel is much better news than just a new start. It's a new nature, a new life. In you. Next week, when we do water baptisms in the 11 o'clock service, we're going to see, we're going to say over these people, there's not just a new start, there's a new life that has begun, new nature. But then he says, remember by remembering who God is. That's another, one of the other ways we practice by remembering who God is. Who is this God? Behold, What manner of love the Father has lavished on us? Look, see the kind of love that God has lavished on you that we should be called children of God. Who is this God? The God who lavishes love on you. Who is this God? The God who appeared to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. Who is this God? The God who will appear and when we see him, we will be like him. This is who he is. There's a long-standing Christian um, meditation upon the beatific vision. The more we glance, the more we behold the beauty of God, the more we become like Him. Part of the practice that John is inviting us to is to say, don't look at your own sinfulness, but look at the Father and the love that He has lavished on us. Don't fixate on your behavior that you're trying to change. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. What are you fixing on this thing I'm trying to change about myself, or the Father's love who has changed who I am. One of the ways the church, a part of the church, has talked about this process, the Catholic church made the distinction between venial sins and mortal sins. Anyone remember this from your childhood, maybe? Okay. A venial sin is a sin that you do, but it hasn't corrupted love charity in your actual heart a mortal sin is when the root the seed that god put in you of love is actually corrupted so a venial sin is you say oh, I, I got angry at this person but if i when i stop and think about it i actually do love them or like i did this thing but you know when i honestly the truth is i i, I don't want to do I, I actually love the lord and it's one it's a hopeful way isn't it of saying, "Look." You actually haven't corrupted the seed of grace and love that God has put in you. I think I think it's helpful to remember the love of the Father and the new reality He's put inside of you rather than living in this kind of shame-based, fear-based holiness. Do-it-yourself holiness. Oh! You remember how people used to say, Jesus is, gonna, Jesus is coming soon, so you better get your life right. John says the opposite, doesn't he? Well, he doesn't say the opposite. He, his tone feels the opposite. He says, Jesus is coming, and when he appears, you will be like him. So come on. Let's purify ourselves now. But the tone is not one of panic. The tone is one of confidence. The tone is one of confidence and sureness saying, look, you're already his. You're already children of God. You already belong. Sometimes we think the only way to deal with this is to give ourselves the kind of false confidence that comes from downplaying sin. So I'm okay. I'm not that bad. I don't do that sin. And so we take stands and we march and we announce policies because we are convinced that someone else's sin is worse than yours. And it's a way of scapegoating, but you know what scapegoating does? Scapegoating is just a way to deflect attention off of yourself. And so if you find someone else whose wickedness is worse, quote unquote, than your wickedness, then you don't have to pay attention to your wickedness. And John says, how's that confidence working out for you? Does that really give you the confidence you want for Jesus' appearing? No. No. You know what the confidence you need is? The confidence that comes from knowing that you already are children of God and that when He appears, you will be fully like Him. Amen?